Welcome to the Forerunner Church Podcast, where we highlight key messages and themes related to the body of Christ, inviting you to connect with our spiritual family as we grow in passion for Jesus and compassion for people. For more information, visit forerunnerchurch.com. Thank you, Brandon. Good morning, everybody. I want to invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be in our midst this morning, that you would help us, that you would shine the light of revelation and understanding and clarity as only you can. I'm asking that you would shine it on our understanding right to our hearts, that you would awaken us and stir us and connect us to your heart related to this subject of covetousness and unfulfillment. I'm asking for your Holy Spirit ministry all throughout these services and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as you can see from the title, I'm talking about declaring war on covetousness and unfulfillment. I'm looking at two primary passages this morning they're in the notes, the first one being 1 John 2, and then a little bit later, we'll look at 1 Timothy 6, which is a really important passage, but, uh, but I'm going to be referencing a number of passages, and you'll find them in the notes. The reason being, and I'll, I'll say this again, the, the New Testament has so much to say on this subject, which is partly why I'm talking about it this morning, talking about it because this subject of covetousness, I consider it to be likely the sin that's most committed amongst believers in the Western world, but it's the one that's least talked about from the pulpit. And there's a connection between that idea. The, um, the sin most committed yet least talked about when we don't shine the light of God's word, when we don't shine that light of truth, on areas of sin, and generations of believers in the Western world grow up relatively disconnected from or without much understanding of an entire area of sin that the New Testament spends much time addressing the lack of attention given, particularly when, in our setting, covetousness is such a driver of Western culture and Western society. It's such a, a massive part of the world that we live in. It's a massive part of people's thinking and the way they, they act and respond and relate to one another. You can look at the, some of the dynamics of society in crisis, the collisions that are happening right now, and, uh, and we look at some of the you know just common social issues, and we tend to focus on the very evident social issues of the day, but nothing ever seems to get solved. I would present the idea that the absence of conversation from the pulpit related to covetousness is a massive contributor to where we find ourselves today as a society. Because it, you get courage and you get boldness in our ignorance to engage in practices and activities that aren't 
checked in a loving, tender, merciful, kind way by us. And so the secondary problem is covetousness as this sin most committed yet least addressed, it's, as we're going to see, it touches one of the core issues of life, one of the central issues of life, where your treasure is, there your heart is. The issues of money, Jesus addressed them extensively because it speaks right to these core issues of what we care about, who we are, how we see ourselves in relationship to one another to identify and to repent our way out of what I call the the restlessness of covetousness. It just creates this, this absence of peace. It robs our joy. It's a poison. It is absolutely poisonous to the pleasure we can take in loving God. And so to identify it and repent our way out of the restlessness of it is critical if we as believers are gonna walk in the fullness of delight and joy in this life. The satisfaction, the pleasure we find in walking with Jesus and communing and in, in joining with him, Christ within, the, the pleasure that we can take and draw from him it is killed by the poison of covetousness. Unfulfillment is the restlessness that distorts the cry of there must be more. There must be more. More of what? Again, if we don't address the issue of covetousness, we're left to fill in that blank with the cultural areas of gratification that define success for our society, for our world. There must be more shifts from, even within the church, there must be more shifts from, there must be more of Jesus, there must be more of God, there must be more of the Holy Spirit, there must be more of the word alive in my heart, there must be more of the knowledge of him operating within me, there must be more of him. It shifts when covetousness becomes common, it shifts to, there must be more, I've, I've got to have more I appreciate the influence that I have. I appreciate the finances that I have. I appreciate the friendships that I have. I appreciate this, but I need more. I need more influence. I need more recognition. I need more honor. I need more safety. I need more security. I need more ministry. I need more connection. I need more job success. I need more promotion. It's the constant search for the moment in which we arrive at satisfaction, yet it never comes. Covetousness is an absolutely cruel mistress in that way. When I talk about covetousness, what do I mean? Talking about Exodus 20, verse 17, one of the 10 commandments. It's right there at the very core and the heart of the law of God. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's manservant, maidservant. You shall not covet their possessions. Because at the heart of that command is the recognition of what covetousness is from the very beginning. Covetousness is an accusation against God and his leadership from our soul related to our provision and position. I'm going to say that again. 
Covetousness is an accusation against God and his leadership over our lives. From our soul, it arises. And it's an accusation about our position and our provision. Think about it. That, that statement means that deep down in our soul is this fear, this place of anxiety, this place of profound insecurity in our relationship with the Father. And from that place of insecurity, we're asking ourselves in the, that deep secret part of our heart that we pretend isn't there, we're asking ourselves a question, are you withholding something from me good? Are you withholding something beautiful for me? Are you withholding something that would benefit me? God, what are you hiding and withholding and keeping from me? If that sounds familiar, it should sound familiar. That's the very lie of the garden itself in Genesis 3. That's the, that's, when you, when you catch that, when you go, wait, whoa, that's the accusation against God from the beginning. When you catch that, you go, oh, that's why Jesus talked about it so much. That's why Paul wrote about it so much. That's why John wrote about it. That's why you find so much in the New Testament about it because now we can go from an old covenant boundary that we're trying to keep to new covenant deliverance from that accusation entirely. But that makes letter B make so much more sense. While it's talked about the least today, it's talked about the most by Jesus. Because he understands the, the, the possibility in the new covenant of full deliverance from covetousness, unfulfillment, that restless accusation against God's leadership, that deliverance is the, is the way to pleasure and joy in him that empowers a walk with him that can be sustained, that can bear the weight of the times in which we live that can endure pain, difficulty, mistreatment, loss, and beyond. Why? Because when we're satisfied in Christ, in Christ alone, and suddenly we're hit by calamity, suddenly we're hit by loss, suddenly we're hit by demotion, suddenly we're hit by that pain of less and loss. If we've been delivered of the first instinct of our soul, which is to accuse God and his leadership, we can still rest in the joy of being loved by Jesus in the place of pain related to loss because we're not blaming him for it. To deliver us from covetousness and unfulfillment is to align with Jesus as he loves us and leads us. It's to... We know that Jesus loves us, but we don't always like his leadership. And ultimately, that's what this morning is about. We have a contention with his leadership over our lives that we may have never really addressed. We've never really talked to him about it. But we have an issue with his leadership. We love the love of Jesus. We love the mercy of Jesus. We love the tenderness and the kindness of Jesus, but we tend to suspend what we know about that kindness when circumstances don't go the way we wanted them to related to our provision and position. And so to be delivered of covetousness is to be delivered into falling in love again, not just with the person of Jesus related to his forgiveness and his love for us, 
his affections for us, but to fall in love with his leadership of our lives. To come to that place, like the Shulamite in Song of Solomon, to come to that place where you go, I love your leadership. I love the way you lead me. I love the detailed way that you understand my heart and my greatness in you. And I love the way that you work to bring me into that greatness. I love it. By the, by the middle of the Song of Solomon, she is rejoicing in his leadership because she's finally getting it. Everything you do is, is to take me somewhere loving you that I can't get to myself. And I like what you're doing. Can you, can you say that this morning? In the different areas of your life, in the areas where you're discontent, where you're unfulfilled, where you're feeling the pain of frustration related to your circumstance, can you say with tenderness, I don't just love you, I, I love the way you lead me. I, I love the details of how you invest in my life. I trust you, but more than trust you, I actually like what you're doing. Letter C, the other reason that I talk about covetousness is, uh, I'm gonna spend a little bit of time on this. This is a big subject, what I'm gonna say next. But, but covetousness, if I'm right, if it's the unaddressed sin that's fueling the spirit of the age, which is, when I say spirit, I don't just mean global demon, I mean global mindset. The things that globally men apart from God rejoice in and, and want to build their lives and world around. When covetousness is celebrated, what kind of world do you build? When covetousness is driving that world. When you have power, when you have political power, when you have economic power, when you have influential power, when you have, when you have the ability to convince others to go your way and covetousness is the driving underlying celebrated value, what kind of world do you build? Question two, what lengths would you go to to keep that world if it's under threat? I mean, if you're wondering, is there something going on? <laughs> like like the, the, the conspiracy that seems to be out there, is there something going on? It's not mysterious. Covetousness has built a world of corruption and oppression by which powerful men, having fought to get, are now fighting to keep. That's, that's not mysterious. That's not conspiracy. That's James. That's James 4. You, by, you, by lust, you make war to get, and by lust, you make war to keep. That's happening right now on a global level. That's where it's going. Revelation 17 and 18, when it talks about the harlot Babylon, it's talking about a global system driven by greed, driven by covetousness, driven by a lust for power to gain it and keep it at any cost, even if that cost is the blood of the saints and the martyrs. Revelation 4, the throne room, there's this moment, this moment as you're, as you're with John the beloved, you're seeing God on his throne, all of his glory and majesty and beauty, and you see around the throne these 24 elders, these, represent, these representatives, these ones that stand for us. They're representatives of the human race and they're throwing their crowns down before the throne. What's going on there? They're, they're throwing their crowns down because as human beings, they're joyfully operating in the opposite spirit of what I just described. The covetousness 
and unfulfillment and lust that drives Babylon at the height of her power on the earth is that same rage that drives the kings of Psalm 2. It's very simple. When James 4, when you lust to gain and make war to get it, and then you make war and lust to keep, when you do those two things, it's very simple. Once you've gained and gotten and are keeping, a very simple thought enters your little pea brain. This is mine. This is mine. This is mine. And then all of a sudden, the Lord, Matthew 24, Psalm 2, Gospel of the Kingdom, he fills the earth with messengers with a very simple message that comes with the global outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh, signs and wonders in the heavens, blood, fire, smoke. I mean, the Lord fills the earth with his power so that he can fill the earth with his messengers and the messengers have a very simple response. It's the father's and he's giving it to his son who he's appointed king of the whole earth. That's good news. And the kings of the earth go, no. You go, what? They go, it's ours. It's not his. It's not yours. It's ours. And so when you look at Revelation 4, it's the fuel for the church. It's meant to be understood this way. This is our fuel. This is what we're to feed on. This is who we're to become. This is how we're to think. This is how we're to face the future. We're to face the future like the 24 elders going the opposite spirit of a covetous world that says it's mine. We go the opposite way. We throw our crowns down. We look at the one that made everything because that's what they sing. They go, this is yours. You're the creator. You made all of this. It's not mine. It's yours. That's the song they sing. This is not mine. It is yours. It's one of the simplest weapons against covetousness. It's one of the simplest weapons against where this world is going. That simple moment of recognition, you're the creator. You're the maker of heaven and earth. I throw the crowns of my entitlement. I throw the crowns of my own personal rights. I throw the crowns of what I think I deserve. I throw it down and I go, that's all yours. You made it. You made me. Do with me what you will. Spend me according to your pleasure. That is such a different cry than what you're hearing across the earth. Lord, my life is not my own. My life is yours. Spend me as you will. And whatever you, whatever's from you, I'll be content. And whatever's, whatever you give me, I'll be content. What you withhold, I'll be content. Because my life isn't the sum total of what you give me or what you withhold from me. My life is the sum total of how you spend me. That's the cry in letter D on the next page. Jude 3, to contend earnestly for the faith that was handed to us by the fathers, that that would be the cry that we hand to the next generation. As a former youth pastor, I want to repent to you for youth ministry in the 90s that built youth ministry around the battle cry, you're special. I long for a youth ministry that was built around your spent, your his, your spent, your given. Your life is not your own. Lay it down. Give everything. He's worth it. I'm a little hesitant 
about the songs of praise being sung about Generation Z. I don't even like the term Generation Z. I like talking about teenagers. Because if you talk about teenagers, you'll always talk about teenagers. If you talk about Generation Z, you're talking about 30-year-olds in a minute. And you're talking about 30-year-olds that you've told are special their whole lives. You're just using different language than in the 90s. But as an old youth pastor, I can see it a mile away. We're just finding new and different creative ways to spiritualize your special and super important. And that's not the faith that was handed to us from the fathers. What was handed to us was a sacrificial love from Jesus through the cross by which my life is not my own and it's spent according to your pleasure. God, I wanna give all to you. I want to give all. It's not about me. It's not about Generation Z. It's not about you. It's not about me. We know it. It preaches good, but it doesn't necessarily you know, fill the youth conferences and it doesn't necessarily fill our hurting egos when it's not working. The culture of covetousness emboldens entitlement, fuels unfulfillment, and robs us of the very power of the cross that actually is the means to bring us into true fullness and rest. When my life is not my own and it's spent according to his pleasure and the brilliance of his leadership, unto the birthing of the age to come. There's a, there's a long-term sense of, no, this, is, this billion-year plan is gonna be awesome. I don't have to stress about my lack right now. Let's look at John 2.15, 17. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. That's the, that's the spirit by which we come this morning. Do not love the world or anything in the world, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And, and, and what he's talking about, he's not talking about don't love nature. He's not talking about don't love the, even the Isaiah 40, the, the flower of beauty of what men build. You can, you can go to you know, a city and see something beautiful and go, wow, you're not violating the spirit of 1 John 2. He's talking about that, that culture, that spirit of the age, the way that things are according to the way that wicked men have built them. Because don't, don't love the way things are. If you love the way things are, if you love the world as it is, culture, society, if you love the way men think, and if you love the way men relate to one another, love for the Father's not in you. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires, the world and its passions, the world and the things that the world wants. This is the big issue of covetousness. What do we want? What does the world want? Do you want what the world wants? Do you want what the world wants? Do I want what the world wants? And do I spiritualize that want to justify it, to feel good about it? That's the love of the world that John's talking about. He's speaking like an arrow right to the subject of covetousness. What do you want? The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. 
If we go the way of the cross, we live forever. If we go the way of sacrificial love, we live forever. We don't have to live a life of acquisition. We don't have to live a life of constantly trying to satisfy that unfulfillment by which we're imagining the title, the position, the place, the security, the honor, the compliments, the thanks, the finances that we secretly crave but don't want to admit we don't have to go that way. We can go a way by which we will live forever. It's not always going to feel that great but it will so powerfully satisfy. Letter B, the lust of the flesh. What John's giving us, he's giving us detail. James does it in James 1. Paul does it in in Romans 7, which I reference here. John is giving us detail on how sin works, or James said how sin is born within us and grows this is, a, this is a masterclass in how sin works. The lust of the flesh, the, that little passage I'm referencing there, Romans 7, that's an important passage because Paul gives some detail to how sin, when it bumps into the law, or sin, when it bumps into the boundaries that God sets for us, how sin is awakened or activated by those boundaries. Because again, we live with this constantly hidden, dormant accusation against God within us. What's John describing? He's describing this kind of, it's like this dormant, hidden accusation. And Paul's point in Romans 7 is that this kind of dormant accusation, this dormant, I don't like God's leadership. I don't, I don't think God leads me well. I don't, and again, we're, because it's dormant, we're so spiritual, we don't think we have it. That's why when it rises up within us, when the lust of the flesh rages, that's why we so often go, oh, no, I don't believe that. I don't want that. I don't care about that. I don't care about, I mean, think about how often we tell one another lies that we so deeply believe. I don't care about position at all. I don't care about that role, I don't care, I don't need more, I'm so fine. And your heart's going, as mine has, your heart's going, that's not true. I really want that actually. No, no, that's wrong. Who cares? Who cares if they ask me to do this? Who cares if they choose me to do that? I don't care. And the heart's like, no, you super duper care. I super duper care. I really care a lot. Why? Because, the, because we're in a Romans 7 dilemma in that we know the law. We actually know what is spiritual. We know what is moral and virtuous and right. But that doesn't mean that our heart's transformed yet. Just because we know the right attitude we're supposed to have doesn't mean that our heart has been transformed by grace. You don't transform your own heart by knowing the right virtue. You don't even transform your own heart necessarily by telling others the right virtue. Grace and the power of the Holy Spirit as we engage in repentance, active repentance, like, no, God, I don't, I, I wanna live in truth. I do care. I don't want to. I need you to change what I want. I acknowledge before you that law, that rule, that 
that opportunity, that possibility, that all of it worked together to awaken a dormant wanting that I didn't know I had. That's the lust of the flesh. It's this dormant wanting you didn't know you had. And what Paul in Romans 7 describes is the law becomes the light that wakes it up. You're like, it's like, what's this? I want things. I want things. Well, have you talked to God about it? No, I want things. That's the thing. It's wanting apart from God. It's wanting outside of God's will. It's wanting without bringing God into the wanting. It's you bring your virtue, you bring your morals, you bring your sensibilities into the wanting. I should want that. I shouldn't want that. But you're talking to yourself. You're not bringing God into the wanting. When you talk to yourself, you, I don't, you try to stuff that wanting back down in our own righteousness. Like, no, I know the right way to go. And the right way to go is to not care about that. So you stuff it down. Rather than whenever you bring God into your wanting, whenever you bring God into your wanting, it's almost always gonna lead to repentance. Like God, oh, that sweet conviction. Yeah, I don't want that. Help me, <laughs> help me. Just right there, just change my heart right there. I wanna be honest with you. I want something that's not, I don't know that you want it. Do you want that for me? I hope you, I kind of do. I wouldn't mind if you wanted that for me. Well, you don't? Okay, help me, <laughs> help me. But the problem is the lust of the flesh, it activates this want that I call like, it's like a heat seeking missile. It's looking for a target. The lust of the flesh, to say it a different way, it's a general or a generic wanting without talking to God. It's a generic wanting. Your, your wanting is activated. It ran into the law that says don't want if God doesn't want it for you. It ran into the principle and now your wanter's like, I don't care. It's, it, that's the accusation as it bumps into the boundary. The boundary is God lovingly going, I don't want that for you. But our unrenewed heart, our unrenewed mind, it, as we run into that boundary, we're like, I don't like that you don't want that for me. <laughs> but then John goes, but then there's the next step. There's the lust of the eyes. And the lust of the eyes is when that heat-seeking missile of rebellious want finds a target. And it's like, you've always wanted that. The moment your eyes, because again, you're not bringing God into the conversation. You're not bringing God on the journey or into the process. And so your eyes just find something like, oh, I see it. I've always wanted that. That is what I've always wanted to be. That's where I've always wanted to go. I mean, Instagram is the worst. I've always wanted to go to the Maldives. You didn't know that those islands existed until 20 seconds ago when it came up in your feed. I've always wanted to go there. No, you've always had a restless, unfulfilled, rebellious want undealt with that is covetousness, but no one ever told you it was covetousness. You've always had a restless, unfulfilled want in accusation against God's leadership that you've never acknowledged or addressed. And the moment your eyes saw your Instagram feed, you just went, that is where I must go someday. Have you talked to God about that? Does God wanna send you there or are you just sending yourself there out of lust? And then the pride of life, John goes, and then you just, you just go to the next step. Now that 
Your heat-seeking missile of want has locked on target. Pride of life is the self-justification. It's the way we talk ourselves into. It's not just that I am going there. I should go there. It's right that I go there. I deserve to go there. I've been working hard. I've been working hard. You know what the best thing is when you've been working hard? The Maldives. Like what? (laughs) What are you talking about? It's the best thing. I've just heard that like faraway Pacific Islands when you've been working hard, you know? Like what are you doing? The pride of life has you convinced of your own rightness within your own desires. We want to, in this explosion of social media, in this explosion of options, in this explosion of possibilities, it's all about the way in which we bump into one another related to that wanting, which is Paul's point. Let's turn there in 1 Timothy 6. Roman numeral three. Paul is talking about the workplace. He's talking about where we work together. Now, as he's talking about where we work together, Paul understands something that's really important. He understands how the poison of covetousness, once it destroys the pleasure that we take in God, the the joy, the fulfillment, the satisfaction that we take from Jesus and loving him and being loved by him, Once the poison starts attacking that, Paul goes, then that poison destroys your communities. The poison destroys your workplaces. The poison destroys your relationships, your friendships. And the one he's really focused on in six, he goes, the poison of covetousness destroys your life with your boss, with your leader. It, because it changes, it distorts the relationship in a tragic way. You don't see your boss or your leader as Paul exhorts you to in the beginning of chapter six as brethren, as brothers, as sisters, but you don't see them as family. When you can't see one another as family enjoying Jesus together, which makes them enjoyable. What makes the people you work with enjoyable? Either the grace of God for you to see them as Jesus does or the love of God for you to love them as Jesus does. That's what makes your coworkers enjoyable. You start to feel like they are family from the source, from Jesus, but covetousness detaches you from the fountain of his love and his, and his affection for them and what he says about them. Covetousness detaches you from that source and you begin to see them through the eyes of comparison, opportunity, and possibility. And then even worse, you begin to see them as a source of potential position and as a threat or a help to your provision. The moment they become that, they become a form of an idol in your life. Your boss, your leader becomes an idol. Your boss or your leader becomes your means to your potential destiny. Your boss or your leader, the one that picks you, the one that promotes you, the one that actually seems to have a say in your provision and your position and your security, the one who can promote you then becomes a, a helper, a threat, an idol. You, you, you don't see them as a brother or a family member. You see them as an obstacle or a help. And when they don't help, they are an enemy. That's what Paul's speaking to in chapter six. 
said, if anyone teaches otherwise about who your boss is, who your leader is as brethren, how we're to relate to them in a healthy way. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of Jesus, the doctrine which accords with godliness, if, that, if they don't yield to this, if we don't yield to this, we're proud, knowing nothing, obsessed with disputes and arguments, because that's where it goes. Disputes and arguments with words, envy, strife, so much strife reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men. In other words, constantly trying to position yourself to be noticed, constantly trying to position yourself to be promoted, constantly trying to position yourself to be picked, to be affirmed, to be esteemed. The useless wranglings of an insecure man hoping that someone will acknowledge their pickableness and resenting when they're never picked. Why? Because they see godliness as a means of personal gain related to material needs, possessions, and promotion. That's the core issue of the toxicity that robs you in relationships, in the workplace, in community. Godliness is a means to personal gain. Godliness is a means to make my life easier. Godliness is a means to make my life better. The alternative that Paul presents in verse six, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. I love that phrase. There is great gain to, to, to fight, to make war on the inside. This isn't about boo them. There's so, we are so, I am so sick. I don't know if I can do another minute of social media. It is just constantly about how wise I am, how bad they are, how dumb they are, how smart I am, how this, that we need this. It's always about the other guy. You just never on social media find a context for authentic repentance. I don't give a hoot about what anybody's doing out there about this problem of covetousness. I think about us, I think about me. And there's great gain for us. The great gain that we can lay hold of is found in the things, letter B, under number three, it's found in the things that we avoid when we break free from covetousness. When we get delivered, what are we getting out of? Well, we're getting out of temptation. We're getting out of a snare. We're getting out of many foolish and harmful lusts that drowned men in destruction and perdition. The great gain is found in the things we're now free to really pursue because now not weighed down, not snared, not snagged by covetousness that's looking to pull us away into something that's not real and never satisfies. Now we're free to genuinely pursue righteousness Godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. That's verse 11. I just want to give this quick note in letter C because I can, I can feel it. It's, it's a cultural, social, unbiblical rage fueled by covetousness that I can, covetousness that I can see out there. 
Paul did not contrast covetousness with poverty. The virtue isn't be poor. He did not condemn those who are wealthy in this present age. It's not virtuous to be poor and wicked to be rich. That's kind of how the conversation's getting simplified out there. It's the only thing I hear about covetousness. Boo the rich. The problem is in 617, Paul didn't do that. Paul didn't condemn you for being wealthy. He just warns you. He exhorts you. If you are wealthy, he said, just know that you don't want to be confident in your wealth. You don't want to draw strength from being wealthy. You want to, with humility, recognize that that wealth is from God and that wealth is your vehicle, your way to store up treasure in heaven. It's your way to fill your life with good works. Everybody has their way and their assignment. Everybody has their opportunity to store up treasure in heaven. He goes, your wealth is your way. Don't boast in it or see yourself as more special, but see your wealth as a means to great gain in the age to come. Paul wrote about contentment in Philippians 4, in whatever state I'm in, this simplicity of heart. It's like, God, if you give me a lot, I'll be content there because I know there will be grace from you if I access it to manage that. But if I find myself in a place of struggle and nothing and little, I know there will be grace from you to manage that. I don't need to figure it out. I don't need to outthink your leadership. I just need to access the available grace in the season that I'm in to go the way that you've given me to go. I need to be rejoicing in what is of you and from you. I need to rejoice in where I'm at and what I have. And I don't need to live in this insecure fear that somewhere out there is a better roll of the dice for me. It's something out there. If I could just, if I could just make this happen, if I could just make that happen, if you would just make this opportunity, if you would open that door, I don't need to do that. I need to make the small continual choices on a daily basis where the clearer I can see something related to covetousness without shame, without condemnation, without this massive rending of garments. Oh, I'm so covetous. No, don't do that. Just go, I can, I can see it now. Here's the sweetness of repentance and confession. Repentance and confession starts not with condemnation, but the sweetness of being able to see it in our own lives. We just go, oh, I didn't want to admit it, but it's there. And then the sweetness of repentance is looking at God and going, I don't want it to be there. Could you get it out? Could you deliver me? Could you change me? And then the sweetness of confession is just going to your friends now and going, man, that sermon the other day, I got that. Would you pray for me? Yeah, me too. Would you pray for me? Yeah, it's real simple. We don't have to do a big shame fest. We don't have to do a big condemnation party. We just have to do the simple little things on a daily basis that keep a light on it and declare war until it's gone. Let's stand. Amen. I'm not gonna do an altar call because a covetous message is like a 10-year altar call and then a 20-year one after that. It really is. It's, it's the kind of message you repent your way back to 
years from now. It's not the kind of message you come up to the altar and suddenly you're like, covet is free for 17 years. Just all over the room, I want to invite you to, if you want, just close your eyes, put your hand in your heart. Lord, I'm asking that you would shine your light, show us what we can't see without your help. As your word is spoken, take weak words and shine much light behind them. Show us, God, those areas of our heart that are out of alignment. Show us those ways in which we've gone on a journey of acquiring that didn't involve you. Gone on a journey of wanting that didn't include you. God, I'm asking that you would help us all over this room and beyond, that you would help us to bring you in to our conversations. Less wanting without you in frustration and more repenting with you in transformation. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like prayer for anything, just healing, um, need, just whatever, I wanna invite you to come forward. Our team would love to pray with you this morning. Amen. Bless you all. Thank you for tuning in to Sunday Sermon. For more information, service times, and free teaching resources, visit forerunnerchurch.com.